Amen. Revelation chapter number three tonight. Surely you knew we were going to be there. Revelation chapter number three. And uh, we'll actually start by just reading through the text in its entirety. Revelation three. And verse seven is where we'll start. Revelation 3 and verse number 7, we're talking about the church in Philadelphia. So let's look at verse number 7 through 13. Here's what it says. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, These things saith he that is holy, he that is true, he that hath the key of David, he that openeth and no man shutteth, and shutteth and no man openeth. Here's what he says. I know thy works. Behold, I've set before thee an open door, and no man can shut it. For thou hast a little strength, and hast kept my word, and hast not denied my name. Behold, I will make them of the synagogue of Satan, which say they are Jews and are not, but do lie. Behold, I will make them to come and worship before thy feet, and to know that I have loved thee. Verse 10, because thou hast kept the word of my patience, I also will keep thee from the hour of temptation, which shall come upon all the world to try them that dwell upon the earth. Verse 11, behold, I come quickly. Hold that fast which thou hast, that no man take thy crown. Him that overcometh will I make a pillar in the temple of my God. And he shall go no more out, And I will write upon him the name of my God, and the name of the city of my God, which is New Jerusalem, which cometh down out of heaven from my God, and I will write upon him my new name. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith in the churches. And I hope we'll do that tonight. Listen to what God has to say to us tonight. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, we we ask your blessing upon the preaching of your word. Uh, Lord, I trust that you have something for us tonight um, from the example of this faithful church and the promises you gave them. God, I pray it'd be an encouragement. I pray it'd challenge us to remain faithful. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Well, if you follow Christian news, there's been a lot of news lately about a couple different Christian leaders who, and I use that term maybe a little bit lightly, that have doubted their faith or have completely walked away from Christianity. Uh, One of those being a guy named Joshua Harris, and he wrote a book that's pretty popular uh, in conservative uh, churches called I Kiss Dating Goodbye. And he put up this Instagram post and he renounced his faith from Christianity. He said this, by all the measurements I have for defining a Christian, I'm not a Christian. And then more famously, a guy who's a worship leader at a very famous church in Australia uh, also quit the ministry and basically said he's pretty much left the faith. And then here's why I bring that up. I don't bring that up to draw attention to those people because honestly I think you know, people try to make a show of everything they do. But I bring that up as a point that I think all of us can acknowledge tonight that none of us are exempt from leaving the faith. I mean, surely you know people that used to sit in this church or that used to go to church and used to be faithful to God and used to serve God that aren't. Are you with me? That that if that can happen to those people, 
people in my life that I looked up to that were faithful servants of the Lord, surely it could happen to me. And we look tonight at this faithful church in Philadelphia, and I want to preface the message by saying this, they weren't on the brink of quitting on God, but I think we have to peel back and look between the lines, because here's Jesus trying to give some encouragement to this church that was faithful, and I have to ask myself the question, why would Jesus do that? And here's the reason. Why did Jesus encourage this church? Because he felt like he knew that they needed some encouragement so that they could continue being faithful to God. And and so he's going to give them some promises that we'll talk about in a minute. And I can't help but wonder, especially in Fellowship Baptist Church that's made up of so many faithful people, that maybe there's some people in the chairs tonight who on the outside would be our heroes, our everyday heroes, who've been faithful to God, who stuck to their faith, who are rock solid, but on the inside, maybe they wonder, is it worth it? Maybe you begin to follow God and follow Jesus and begin to serve him with everything you have, and at some point in your life, you begin to look back and say, well, hold on a second. I've given so much for Jesus, and it doesn't seem to be paying off. Maybe I'm the only one who's ever felt that way, but surely there's some out there tonight who felt, man, I don't know if if going all in for Jesus is really worth it. And if that's you tonight, I can promise you that God has a message for you from the same message he wrote to the faithful church. And so I want us to look at how this letter begins in verse number 8. And really Jesus begins this letter by praising this church for two things. He praised them, number one, for their persistent obedience to God's word. I want you to look at verse number eight. He, he starts it off the same way as every other letter. I know thy works, and behold, I've set before thee an open door. We'll talk about that in a little bit. But he says, um, in verse number eight, he says that thou hast little strength and hast kept my word. He says, you've kept my word. You've persistently obeyed my word. Even when the culture around you challenged your obedience, you stayed faithful to me and you kept my word. Now, now, forgive me if I have to reference some past messages, but in almost every single message, we've talked about the culture these churches in Asia Minor lived in. I mean, it wasn't easy to obey God's word. Uh, These are cultures that their worship was mixed with immorality, that prostitution was a part of worship, okay? And it wasn't very easy for the Christian to live out God's laws. They lived in a culture that was obsessed with status and money. They lived in a culture that was all about idol worship, and yet Jesus writes to this church and he says, hold on a second, I look down from heaven and I see this church that has a little strength, meaning that they have no influence in the culture, they're not very grand, they, they wouldn't have had the superintendent of their school district send out emails and invite people to teach your appreciation day. Uh, this church was tiny, it was oppressed, it had very little influence, and yet While they looked like nothing on the outside, God looked down in a church and he saw some people who faithfully obeyed his word. But then he praised them for the second thing in verse number eight. He says this, that thou hast not denied my name. They refused to deny God's name. Now you have to understand that in this culture, identifying with Jesus came at a real cost. 
Identifying with Jesus could cost you your job. It could cost you your biggest client for your business. It could cost you a relationship with your parents. It could, it could put you in prison, or even in some extreme cases, identifying with Jesus as your Lord could cost you your life. And yet here's this church that refused to deny God's name. And here's what strikes me about it is that they were so faithful to God, and I think this is the idea of verse number eight, they were so faithful to God even when they had every reason not to be. You know, in some ways, in conservative Southwest Kansas, being a Christian almost puts you ahead in life. I mean, a lot of people in our community would claim the label Christian. And you look at our church and, and how our church has been able to grow in this community. It's not like Christianity is unpopular. Come on now. It's, it's not that Christianity puts us behind or is a setback. But here's this church. And they were a very small church. And a lot of them had paid a great price for following Jesus. Yet they were still faithful to him. Even when circumstantially everything in their life gave them a reason not to be faithful. And I can't help but wonder that in the same way that Jesus praised this church, that what if Jesus wrote a letter to FBC? I wonder if he'd look down and he would praise the faithfulness of some people in this church who've still served God, who've still been obedient to his word, who have refused to deny his name even when life gave them every reason not to be. I wonder if he would see some people who faced some awful health conditions and had every reason to be bitter, but they refused to be. I wonder if he'd look down and he'd see some people in our church who've had some conversations, and the other person looks at you and says, why on earth would you continue to serve God when this, this, and this has happened to you? I wonder if he'd look down our church and he'd see some teenagers or some college students who've been ridiculed because they refuse to participate in what's popular in the high school and the teen culture. I wonder if he'd look down and he'd praise those who were willing to wait for a godly spouse instead of settling outside of God's plan with someone who wasn't a Christian. Can I just remind you, church, of a truth that we often use negatively? That God sees everything you do. And if you're obeying God, that's a good thing. Because if you're like this church, especially this church, sometimes you feel like God doesn't see the good stuff. And there are people, I understand this, in the chairs tonight that are struggling with their faith and wrestling with their faith in ways I don't understand and are feeling pains that I don't understand and yet you're being faithful to God and you're obeying his word and you're serving him even when it seems like life is giving you every reason not to be, can I remind you tonight that even though Jesus hasn't penned a physical letter, that he sees that, and that he praises you for that. And I, I can promise you, if you read the rest of the book of Revelation, there will come a day when you see Jesus face to face, and you'll hear him say the words, well done, well done. And Jesus looks down at this church and he begins to praise them for what they were doing and how they were faithfully serving him. But then I want you to look at the rest of this passage because I want you to notice the flow of this passage. In verse 8, he commends their faithfulness. And then verse 9, he says, behold, I will make. Right? And uh, halfway through the verse, verse 9, I will make. 
Then in verse 10, he says, because thou hast kept the word of my patience, it's the same idea. You've been faithful to me. You've honored me. Then he gives them another promise. I also will keep thee. Then in verse 11, he challenges them again to be faithful to God. Behold, I come quickly. Hold fast which thou hast, that no man take thy crown. And then verse 12, he gives them two other promises. Him that overcometh will I make. And then he says, I will write upon him the name of the city of my God. And so I want you to see the structure of this passage, that here's what Jesus is doing. He looks down at this church that's faithfully obeyed his word and has refused to deny his name. And what he's going to do in verses 9 through 12 is he's going to give the faithful people of God four heavenly promises that I'm going to give you tonight. And he's going to give them these four promises But before he gave them the promises, I want you to look at verse number 7. Because some of these promises are going to be a little outlandish to this culture. It it may not be outlandish to us church-going people who studied on heaven or studying through Revelation. But he's going to promise some things to this church that are going to sound a little outrageous. And he starts in verse number 7 by reminding them, let me give you a reminder of my character. Look what he says in verse number 7. He says, these things saith he that is holy. Now, I know we know what that means, but here's what he's saying. He's saying, listen, I'm saying these things. I'm reminding you, I cannot double-cross you. I will not go back on my promises. I will not do something that is bad to you, even as bad as it feels right now with the persecution you're facing. I will not do something evil to you. And then he says, these things saith he that is true. He says, I will not lie. And better than that, I will never overstate a promise. You know some people who overstate some promises? Oh yeah, I know some. But God doesn't. He never overstates. If anything, he underpromises and overdelivers. And then he says this, I, I found this interesting. He says, he that hath the key of David. Now what on earth does that mean? Now you've got to go back in the Old Testament and study some references that use that same term. Here's the idea. He's saying, I'm the true Messiah. And because I am the Messiah, because I am the Savior, I have the key of David, and I'm the one who determines who enters into the kingdom. I have power, and I have authority, and whoever I say enters into heaven, enters into heaven. And then he says, I am the one that openeth, and no man shutteth. What is he saying there? He's saying, when I say something is going to happen, nobody can override me. When I promise that something is going to happen in your life, I don't care what your circumstances look like, it's going to happen. But then he says, I am the one who shutteth and no man openeth. What does that mean? Meaning this, that it's still his authority, his sovereignty. He's saying, when I shut the door on something, nobody's going to change that. And I can't help but think about Revelation and think about how God is going to shut the door on sin and nobody's going to change that. I can't help but think that after the millennial reign, when he's going to throw Satan and that old beast into the fire, that nobody's going to change that. He's going to shut the door on Satan and nothing will be changed. And when God shuts the door, it will be final. When he shuts the door on death, it'll be final. When he shuts the door on disease and pain and persecution, it will be final. Somebody say amen. We serve a God who has all authority over heaven and earth. And it is this God that gave them these four promises. So let me give the four to you. Number one, here's the fourth 
the first reward for the faithful. Jesus will bring vengeance upon those who persecuted you. Verse 9 is a heavy verse. I'm going to be real honest. You probably caught that when we were reading it. Well, look at verse 9 again. He says, Behold, I will make them of the synagogue of Satan, which say they are Jews. Now, that might sound familiar from the church at Smyrna, and are not. But do lie. Behold, I will make them to come and worship before thy feet, and to know that I have loved thee. Now, let me give you some background on this so this doesn't seem sacrilegious to you. There was a group of ethnically Jewish people that were persecuting these Christians. And it's the same type of group that was persecuting the church at Smyrna that we talked about, the suffering church. And here's what was going on. In the, in the Roman government, um, things were a little dicey with the Christians. Now, they weren't like, you know, getting their heads chopped off left and right. But they were on really shaky ground. They used to be recognized as a religious group under the uh, government, but then they, they stopped recognizing Christians as an official religious group, which meant they lost a lot of their rights. And so now here are these Jews um, that hated the Christians because actually the Roman government grouped them as Jews. And they said, hold on one second. You guys are a bunch of fakes and phonies. You serve some made-up savior and so they were really upset. And so th what they would do is they would do everything they could to try and get the Christians on some trumped up charges with the government. Meaning that, you know, some of you police officers, they were the people always calling the cops on their neighbors. Trying to find some reason to get their Christian in jail. I heard he didn't pay taxes. I heard he did this. I heard he, she did that. Hey, I heard their business hasn't been paying their taxes. I heard they did this and insulted a Roman citizen, and they're doing everything they could to try and down these Christians, try and get them on some fake charges. And I could imagine that some small, down, small town Kansas people understand what it's like when one small influential group wants to tear someone's name down. Come on now. We know what that's like. And that's what was happening in this, this church. They're just a little church. But man, this, this group of Jewish people were doing everything they could to land them in jail. And here's what Jesus is saying to these Christians. He said, he's saying, first of all, what they're saying about you isn't true. And the claims that they make to be my people are not true. He says they're lying. Now, they may be ethnically Jewish, but if they, if they ridicule people who claim me as their savior, they're not even my people. That's what he said in verse number 9. He says, they're of the synagogue of Satan. They say they're Jews, but they do lie. They're of the synagogue of Satan. And then he says something really interesting, verse 9. And here's where we get the idea of point number 1. He says, I will make them to come and worship before thy feet. Now, now before you think this is like man worship, it's not. It's the same idea in the parable Jesus gave where the debtor came and worshipped at the feet of his master and said, forgive me of my debts. Here's what Jesus is saying. He's saying the day will come when they understand who they were messing with. The day will come where they come begging at your feet for your forgiveness. It reminds me of when Saul was on the road of Damascus. And the Lord appeared unto him and said, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? And he says, 
um, that he was kicking against the pricks. The same idea of how Saul was persecuting the Lord himself by persecuting Christians. I get the same idea that that's exactly what Jesus is saying here about this church. And I don't know what this will look like. I don't know if there will be some day when that this actually happens. But the idea is this. That your persecutors will know that they were messing with me. And I don't care if these people were Jews and are my people. In my eyes, they're not even my people. But the day will come when they recognize Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. And consequently, when they understand Jesus is their Lord and Savior, and every knee bows and every tongue confesses, the next thing they'll do is they'll see that they persecuted the wrong person. And listen, let's be honest. None of us really understand what these folks were facing. We don't understand persecution like they do. But can I remind you, can I remind all of us in our American bubble, there are actually more Christians in the world today facing persecution than in this time period. And and I can't help but think of our missionaries in China who get moved from building to building to building because if, if the word gets out that they're assembling, they'll get thrown in jail. And I can't help but rejoice that the day will come when President Xi looks at Jesus Christ in the face and he declares him as his Lord. And consequently, he will know the Christians that he oppressed. And I can't help but wonder that the day will come when Kim Jong-un and all these other foreign dictators who oppress God's people will understand what they've done, my friend. And we need not feel sorry for people around the world because the day will come when Jesus will make it all right. Our Christian brothers and sisters who are in lands far, far away from us, who face things we don't understand, can I just remind you tonight, the day will come when God will make all of that right again. The people who've been sued wrongfully when exercising their religious rights, the people who've been ridiculed by friends and family for being a Christian, listen, the day will come, God will make that right. And we ought to do our best to witness and share the gospel with those people when it's that mild form of pure persecution that we have the luxury of having. But, but can I remind you, when it gets tough, and when you don't know what to say, and you don't know how to take it, maybe you just be reminded that God will make that right someday. He'll make it right. What's the second promise? The second promise is this, Jesus will save you from the tribulation. Look at verse number 10. He says this, Because thou hast kept the word of my patience, here's the promise, I also will keep thee from the hour of temptation, which shall come upon all the world to try them that dwell upon the earth. Now I want you to understand, this church was facing, in their minds, one of the most horrible things they could possibly face. It was the darkest time of their life. They got kicked out of the synagogue. We'll talk that in a little bit. They were oppressed by people that used to be their friends as soon as they claimed Jesus as their Lord. And their life looked pretty dark. But here Jesus is writing to them and he's saying, listen, the day will come when there will be a lot greater temptation upon this earth. And you may be enduring something that feels bad right now and I'm not going to pull you out of it. Did you hear that? He says, I'm not going to pull you out of it. But I can promise you this, I will keep you from something far worse than you're experiencing right now. 
Now, that's not always the most comforting thing. But if you understand what the tribulation is, that ought to be a little bit comforting to God's people. Uh, we're, gonna start, we're actually in the middle of it in our fellowship Bible classes at 945. Hope you'll join one of those if you're not. But if I understand the numbers right, two-thirds of the world's population is going to die in the tribulation period. That's the great hour of temptation Jesus referred to in verse number 10. And, and again, here's the idea. That this church couldn't imagine a, a worse situation than the one they were in. But Jesus writes and reminds them, listen... I may not pull you out of this situation that you're facing right now that's bad, but I can, I can look ahead, and I've already delivered you from something far, far worse. Now, I don't know about you, but that connects with me a little bit. Because aren't there times, church, where we feel like we're in the darkest possible time we could be? And I'm not going to at all minimize or negate the thoughts of that, but I, I'm just trying to help you understand, church, that, that here's Jesus riding this church, and he wants to say the same thing to us. Listen, your situation may be dark, but you ought to at least praise God that he's not going to allow you to go through something far, far worse. I'm so glad that the, I think the Bible teaches that there's a pre-tribulation rapture, that we ain't going through any of that stuff, that Jesus is going to keep us from that. And I want, I want to clear this off because there's a little bit of confusion in the text because it, it could sound like that Jesus is only going to deliver the faithful from the tribulation, right? I mean, look at verse 10. Because thou hast kept the word of my patience, I will keep thee from the hour of temptation. He almost makes it sound like that only if you're faithful will you get spared the tribulation. So those of you halfway Christians, you're going through it, right? It almost sounds like that. But I want you to understand this. I said this last time I preached, that in the first century church, there was no such thing as like a lukewarm or a moderate Christian. Because that didn't make sense, right? You weren't a Christian and lost your job but didn't worship the Lord. That, that wasn't at all the case. In their mind, they only saw a faithful Christian and nothing else. And so he's writing these people and he makes it sound like that only the faithful are going to heaven. And I really believe it's this. That every Christian is going to heaven, but in their minds, they couldn't see anything other than a faithful Christian. Because you paid such a high price for it. So what does he promise them? He says, I'll save you from the tribulation. Here's number three. Jesus will give you a secure spot in the temple of God. Look at verse number 12. Him that overcometh, what's the promise? Will I make a pillar in the temple of my God? And he shall go no more out. Now let me give you some background on this. Here's this church. In the first century, if you were saved, it's not like you stopped going to the synagogue and worshiping. Because after all, if I understand the Bible right, it's the same God, right? The God of the Jewish people, right? He will work in their lives again as we're studying in the book of Revelation. But they would still go to the synagogue and worship. And they worshiped knowing that Jesus was the Messiah, but they worshiped with their brothers and sisters, their fellow Jews. And what happened, because of the ridicule of these Jewish people that Jesus is talking about in verse number 9, is they literally told them, do not come back to our synagogue ever again. You are not a Jew. I don't care who your mom is. I don't care who your dad is. You're not a Jew. You're not one of God's people. And don't you dare claim Jerusalem as your homeland. Now, can we understand that would be pretty hurtful to somebody 
who came from a family lineage and was just trying to worship the Lord and just understood that Jesus was the fulfillment of what the Old Testament said. And everything about these Christians' lives was insecure. Their place of worship was insecure. I can't guarantee this, but it's probably like the Christians and brothers in China. Oh, we can't meet here again. They found out. Let's go meet somewhere else. Oh, man, my boss found out I was a Christian again. I may not have a job next week. Do you follow me? Their life was insecure. Everything was changing. There was no security in their life. There was nothing that they could lean on, nothing that was solid, nothing that was permanent because of their worship of Jesus Christ. Everything seemed to be changing around them, and everything they relied upon seemed to be crumbling. But what does Jesus say? He says in verse number 12 that I will make you a pillar in the temple of my God. Now there's a lot of ideas about what this is, but I mean maybe I'm being a little elementary, but a pillar, it's solid. I mean this this thing ain't going anywhere. We'll all be gone and this thing will still be here unless they knock the entire building down. Now unless you're Joel Knutson, the pillar may go somewhere and land on your leg. Only the Knutson family, which is half the church, got that. A pillar is something that doesn't move. These chairs will move. This pulpit will move. But that pillar will stay the same. And here's what Jesus is saying to them. Your life right now is characterized by insecurity. But I promise you, when you get to heaven, you're not going anywhere. You're not going to kicked out of my, getting kicked out of my temple You may be kicked out of your synagogue, but when you arrive at the gates of heaven and you come in, you're not going out. Your your residence in heaven will be permanent. And I can't help but wonder if maybe this will minister to us as 21st century Christians because our life seems to revolve around security, doesn't it? We want more money. Security. We want to buy a house. Security. We, We look for a spouse security. We're hoping for a raise on our social security. Too bad. (laughs) I'm just kidding. Security. Insurance policies. Security. But aren't we all understanding tonight that our world is completely unpredictable? And let me just remind you tonight from God's word that there will come a day when security is no longer your worry. You'll never worry about your social security and retirement in heaven. You won't be fussing about early retirement. You won't be worrying about benefits. You won't be worrying about having a good insurance policy and what may happen. You won't be worrying about how to pay for your groceries. You won't be worrying about feeling alone. You won't worry about natural disasters or broken down cars that won't start when you try to get to choir practice. Listen, all feelings of insecurity will be vanquished once and for all. When we enter heaven, we'll have a secure spot in the temple of God. And then here's number four. Jesus will identify you as a child of God. Look at verse number 12. He says, um, and he, will go, he shall go no more out, and I will write upon him the name of my God, and the name of the city of my God, which is New Jerusalem, which cometh down out of heaven from my God, and I will write upon him my new name. Now I want you to understand, remember this, these folks, a lot of them were Jewish believers that were ethnically Jewish but had been abandoned by their family and had been pointed and laughed at in the face and said, don't you dare call yourself a Jew. 
Don't you dare claim Jerusalem as your homeland. But God looks down at them and says, don't worry about your oppressors, because the day will come when you will not be identified by the words of your critics. The day will come when you'll be identified as my child. The day will come when you will not bear the name of outcast, but the day will come when you bear the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, which is the new Jerusalem. I can't wait for the day where my identity is not defined by the words of other people, the words of my flesh. I think of people whose their, their lifelong struggle is an addiction. And I have a lot of respect for um, sobriety programs, but one thing that bugs the fire out of me is they say stuff like, once an addict, always an addict. And that's your identity you're branded for, branded with forever. There will come a day when you will not be defined by your struggle with sin, but just by the name of your God. There will come a day when you're not defined by the anger you continually show and you always battle. There will come a day when you're not defined by your disease. There will come a day when you're not defined by your imperfections. And there will even come a day when people look at you and the first thing they see is not your race. But the first thing they see is that you're a child of God. I can't wait for that day. I can't wait for my identity to once and for all be a child of God. So those are the four rewards. Jesus will bring vengeance upon your persecutors. Jesus will save you from the tribulation. He'll give you a secure spot in the temple of God and he'll identify you as a child of God. But I want you to look at verse 11 real quick and we'll be done. He says, Behold, I come quickly. Hold that fast which thou hast. Now pay attention to this. That no man take thy crown. Now, I understand that no one can change the status of my salvation. Are we, are we on the same page there? No one can change that. I can't even change that. But he says, don't let any man take your crown. I think the idea is this. He's saying, he's saying these people persecuted by a Roman government. He says, don't let some emperor take the rewards of faithfulness away from you. Don't let some person who's ridicule you, ridiculing you cause you to get so caught up in what the words they're saying that you quit on God. Maybe he would say to us, don't let a disease rob you of the rewards of being faithful to God. Don't let a setback in your life cause you to give up on God and lose the rewards that are yours if you're faithful to him. Don't let someone else trying to cause you to stumble rob you of your reward. Listen, your disease can steal your health, but it can't steal your heavenly reward. There are things in your life that can steal your energy, and it can even steal your willingness to live another day sometimes. But can we be reminded tonight that the only person who's in control of the rewards we receive is us? And here's what Jesus is saying, and here's where we'll end tonight. That no opportunity for compromise on earth is worth losing your reward in heaven. There's nothing in this life. When you look at what God has promised us, is it really worth giving up? Is it really worth quitting on him?
when you look at what's in store for us in heaven, absolutely not. Let's pray together.